So an oxymoron is a figure of speech that has two contradictory terms joined together that you wouldn't typically join together. Uh, they're really common. Uh, you may not have heard that phrase oxymoron, but you use them in your day-to-day -day speech. If I throw out a few of them, you're gonna hear them right away. They're more common than you think. Uh, things like the room was filled with a deafening silence. You're in a fine mess, aren't you? That guy was seriously funny. You are clearly confused. Uh, there's tons of them in our, uh, our, our modern language. Jumbo shrimp, pretty ugly, working holiday. Who made up that one? Uh, you've probably seen the same list that I've seen. Just Google them. There's funny, there's sarcastic ones. There's one that's, that we make fun of because they're not meant to be oxymorons. They just turn out to be oxymorons. So let me give you a couple examples. Microsoft works. Now see, this is the problem with me talking to you here in the studio because I know that right now you are rolling with laughter and I wish I could hear that laughter coming back at me. Microsoft works, we all know it doesn't work. Military intelligence, temporary tax increase. Or how about this one, express mail. Since when has the mail ever been express? So an oxymoron are two contradictory terms that are combined. And what comes into your mind when you hear the word tender? What comes into your mind when you hear the word tenacious? And do you think those two terms could come together, should come together? Well, I want to convince you that they should. Uh, we're in Isaiah 50 this weekend, carrying on in our study, uh, taking a hop, skip, and a jump through these 16 chapters, and we're looking at the third servant psalm. So you're going to need your Bibles open in just a moment to Isaiah 50. What we learn about the servant in this text is that he is both tender and tenacious. That he is used by God to sustain the weary soul, to speak a word at just the right moment in time, and yet he endures incredible humiliation, beating, rejection, and yet he sets his face like a flint. He does not give up. And it's such a unique combination of words. If you think of through the concepts of being tender and gentle and restorative, having the right word in the right time, uh, the kind of person that people come to for encouragement, and yet tenacious in his resolve, set his face like a flint. He would not give up. And of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ and the example that he leaves for us to follow, the model of a life as the servant of God and how we should live our lives as servants of God. Now, let me just run ahead to the end and ask you a couple questions. Uh, if the friends who know you best were talking about their li your life, would they describe you with those words? Would they describe you as tender or tenacious? Uh, are you a teddy bear? Are you a really kind person, someone that people automatically turn to for comfort and for encouragement, but honestly, you're a bit of a pushover. You never say an unkind word about anybody, but you also don't have much of a backbone when push comes to shove. On the other end of the spectrum, are you a bull in the china shop? A person of deep conviction, passion, and resolve, but you lack tact. You run over people with your opinions and your voice and your ideas. You're more truth than you are love. 
You see, what I hope that you're going to see in the text today is that the servant of Isaiah's servant songs, which is Jesus himself, is actually the perfect example for us of what a life of faith should and could look like, a total dependence upon the Lord God, a tender, responsive obedience that will in turn sustain the weary alongside of us, but also a tenacity of spirit that doesn't easily give up is not easily dissuaded, even when the heat of opposition rises against us. So, here's what I want you to take away and think about. The big idea, if you will. Roll it over in your mind. Ponder it over the coming days. That Jesus was tender and tenacious. And we should be too. That Jesus was tender and tenacious. And we should be too. So we're going to look at three things. Uh, we're going to look backwards for a moment at the failure of God's servant, Israel. And then we're going to spend most of our time looking at the perfect life of his servant, Jesus, and then ask a few questions in response in our call to follow this true and better servant. So the failure of God's servant, Israel, the perfect life of his servant, Jesus, and our call to follow the true and better servant. So the backdrop to the text, of course, is simply the failure of God's servant, Israel. Now that word servant is so common throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's literally used hundreds of times. Everything from household servants to bond servants who willingly uh, uh, aligned with a master that they wanted to serve. But in a very special sense, it is used of the nation of Israel as being set apart as a servant as a corporate group of people, as a servant unto the Lord. Isaiah 41, we read earlier a few weeks back, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you. So in a very special sense, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel were chosen as God's servant. It was part of Abraham's call that I will multiply you and through you all nations will be blessed. Walk with me. Don't forget that I've set you apart. I put you as a light to the nations. Obey me. Serve me. Keep my laws and you will flourish as a nation. And nations will be drawn to you. And, and so the primary work of the servant Israel was to be a display of God's glory as a people group among the other nations. And that the other nations around are going to see how God blesses them. They, they will come to you. They will be grafted in. They will want to join you. They will be attracted by the glory of God among you. So God gives them the moral law and the civil law, the, the ceremonial law, uh, what we might call the Articles of Confederation for a, a new government, a new nation, a new way of living life. And God says to them, if you would live like this, you will flourish. These things are given for your good, for your joy, for your flourishing. And I will bless you, I will bless your children and your children's children, and people are going to look to you and they're going to see that these people are so blessed by the Lord their God, we want to know this God. But you know the story, that Israel failed to walk with the Lord. And if, in fact, Isaiah was told in advance that these people wouldn't listen. When Isaiah was called back in Isaiah chapter 6, he is told this, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Uh, Isaiah was given this word before he even started his ministry. You're going to preach, but these people won't listen. They've closed off their eyes and their ears. They don't want to see. They don't want to hear. They don't want to understand. They have chosen intentionally to harden their hearts, not to listen, not to respond, and not to obey. But go for it, Isaiah. Preach to them. And so God rebukes his servant Israel. Uh, in our text and other Old Testament texts, Isaiah 42, hear you deaf. Look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Let me just cut to the chase that Israel failed to be the light that they should be. That's the main point. We see the failure of the servant of Israel. And when we get into chapter 50, which is our text for today, uh, it opens with the Lord reminding them of how they got where they were. It was because of your sin that you were sent away. I, I came to you and I cried out to you and there was not a single person that answered. No one responded to me. And so in the greater context of both this book of Isaiah and of the Old Testament, it points to the fact that God's servant Israel had failed. But God is not done yet. There's another servant coming, and that's who we're looking at today. The coming servant, who we know is Jesus. Now beginning at verse 4 of chapter 50 and down through verse 9, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What we see in those few verses is the perfect life of his servant, Jesus. Now, I don't know as I read that if anything stood out to you in those verses, but what I want you to see is the two sides to this servant. Because first we see his ability to comfort the weary, to sustain and uphold them with his word. He was the kind of person that people turned to for encouragement. There was a word in time in the right moment. The Lord has sustained me that I might in turn sustain the weary. But also, we see his tenacity of spirit, that he doesn't give up, that he doesn't run away, that even when he faces opposition and hatred and persecution, when he's despised, he's mocked, he's spit upon, he's a subject of shame, 
and humiliation, yet he doesn't turn away from his calling. Indeed, he says, I've set my face like a flint. I've got a job to do, and I am going to do the job I've been given. It's almost a defiant spirit as he cries out, who can contend with me? Who's my adversary? Behold, the Lord God is my help. Now, if you just pause there, there are so many other encouraging texts like this to the New Testament believer. If you fast forward to the book of Romans, we get a parallel text in the New Testament where Paul is asking the Roman church, you know what, if God is for us, who can be against us? That chapter opens with this amazing promise, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when the enemy comes whispering voices of condemnation in your ear, you send him packing. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And, and the chapter goes on to say, and the sufferings that we face in this life, which we will, those sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that we're living for, what we're looking forward to. And so we endure through those sufferings. And, and then the chapter ends with this question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? It, it, it's this tenacious stance that we see here in Isaiah 50. We hear it echoed in Romans 8. Who can bring any charge against the children of God? Who can condemn us if we're hidden in Christ? Who can separate us from the love of God? It can't be done. Uh, one of my favorite ancient texts from the second century, it was an Easter message preached by Melito of Sardis, one of the church fathers in those early years. And he takes on the voice of Christ as he concludes his Easter message. And it has echoes here to Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. Who can contend with me? Uh, just listen to these words. Uh, they're powerful. But he rose from the dead and mounted up to the heights of heaven when the Lord clothed himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer, and been bound for the sake of the condemned, and buried for the sake of the one who was buried. He rose up from the dead, and cried with a loud voice, Who is he that contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up one who's been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I'm the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. What an amazing text. What an amazing message. But it would be wrong for us to only see the tenacity of spirit that the servant of the Lord has, even though we desperately need it in the days that we live in. Don't overlook verse 4. The Lord God has given me an instructed tongue. He has discipled me. He has taught me so that I can sustain the weary, that I will have a word in time, a, a right word in the right moment to encourage and to soothe and to mend and to heal. Uh, if you think back to the, the, the first servant song, Isaiah 42, weeks ago, the bruised reed he will not break, the smoldering wick he, he doesn't snuff out, and we see there the gentleness and the tenderness of, of Jesus. We see it in his, in his earthly ministry. His care for the widow and the orphan, the children and the poor. In other words, he doesn't kick us when we're down. He doesn't snuff out that faintly flickering wick of uh, uh, flame 
of faith. And so while it might sound like an oxymoron, it might sound like a contradiction, we see that the Lord's servant is at one and the same time tender but tenacious. Tender but tenacious. It's important that we see the contrast. Because while Israel was called to be the, the Lord's servant, the people of God were stubborn. They were stuff, st uh, stiff necked. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, and they chafed under the rule of God. And even though they cried out here, in fact, just a few verses earlier in chapter 49, verse 14, they, they're like, the Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. And God is really quick to say, no, not so. Not so. I could not. I would not forget you. No more than a nursing mother could forget the infant in her arms. I've graven you on the palm of my hands. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken, but quite the opposite. Chapter 50 opens up with these reminders. It was you who forsook me. It was you who forgot me. You walked away. I never walked away from you. I never forsook you. I never have forgotten you. You're graven on my hands, but you turned your back. I came to you and I cried out to you, but not a single person responded to my voice. But then this beautiful promise, when he asks it in a question form, is my arm so short that it can't save? Is my arm too short to reach you? Even in this state of rebellion you're in? You know what? I've got one in mind who will fulfill the role that you failed to fulfill. Whereas Israel failed to listen, my servant has tuned his ear to my word. Morning by morning, he is awakened and he's not rebellious. He not only hears, he listens. There's a distinction. He not only hears, he actually listens. He takes it into action. He doesn't turn back, but he obeys. He responds to the word of God. And it's an amazing image for us to think about. Knowing who Jesus was and is, knowing that Jesus in his earthly life immersed himself in relationship with a father and immersed himself in the word of God. We've got to ask ourselves, we've got to remind ourselves of these things. Where does the servant of the Lord get his gentleness and his strength? Well, look at the way he lived his life. He says, the Lord taught me, the Lord awakens me, he tunes my ear, he disciples me, he teaches me, he trains me. Have you ever thought this through, how much Jesus was immersed in the scriptures? How Jesus absolutely trusted in the written word of God. It, it's an amazing thing to think through that Jesus was continually quoting from the scriptures. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus quotes out of 24 of the Old Testament books. He affirmed the authority, the infallibility of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, on one occasion, he says, if you didn't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe me either. You know, there's some people today that uh, try to pit the words of Jesus against other people's words. I like Jesus' words, but I don't like the Old Testament. I like Jesus' words, but I don't like the Apostle Paul or others. It's ridiculous. Because Jesus affirms all scripture as authoritative and inspired. He said, if you didn't believe Moses and the prophets, in other words, you don't believe the Old Testament, then you won't believe me either. He took every word seriously. He said every jot and tittle should be taken seriously. None of them will pass away. That was simply the, the smallest letter 
in the alphabet and the smallest punctuation point, not even a punctuation point will fall away. Jesus believed that the whole Bible was inspired. And when he faced crisis, he goes to the word of God. And that saturation with the word equipped him in order to be able to speak a word to the weary and sustain them. It also equipped him to suffer. That when he was hated, when he was mocked, and ultimately when he was unjustly crucified, he didn't give up on the call of God on his life, but he, he set his face like a flint. How did he accomplish this? Well, there's a hint here in the text. In fact, far more than a hint. It appears four times. The phrase Lord God, or some of your translations will say Sovereign Lord, it's two Hebrew words, Lord, Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, or Jehovah. The Lord God, or the Sovereign Lord, is often how it's translated when those are combined. In verse 4, in verse 5, in 7, in verse 9, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord God opened my ear and I wasn't rebellious. Verse 7, the Lord God helps me, therefore I'm not distressed. Uh, verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? You see, Jesus didn't try to face this battle in his own strength alone. We need to think this through, that it is, it's an amazing thought that the God of the universe, we're told in Philippians 2, emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his rightful glory along the right-hand side of the Father to take on human flesh and to live among us in the frailty of a human body. That he was tempted in every way like we are tempted and yet without sin. And you're like, how did he do this? Well, the text makes it so clear. He did it only by the power of God carrying him through day by day and moment by moment. He awakens me morning to morning. The text basically asks the question as it goes on, so how about you? If this is how the servant of the Lord lived, how about you? Verse 10 and 11, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Uh, we've seen the failure of Israel. We've seen the perfect life of the servant Jesus. And now we see our call to follow the true and better servant. Because the question is this, who is there that fears the Lord? We've looked at the perfect servant Jesus. Now who's out there? Who's on the Lord's side? Who wants to join this team? Who wants to identify as one of the followers of this true servant? Then walk in the light of the Lord. Trust in the name and the power of the Lord. Rely entirely and totally on the power of the sovereign Lord to sustain you, to help you be tender and tenacious at the same time. And you might say, well, what other choice do you have? Well, if you're reading carefully, you will see in the text that it says you're stumbling, stumbling around in the darkness and you can walk in the light of the Lord or you can light up a few torches of your own, if you will. 
You can seek to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. You can find your own path to enlightenment, to encouragement, to strength. But ultimately, those fires are going to burn out. Those torches are going to leave you in the dark. Your self-sufficiency will ultimately prove to be insufficient. So why not turn to the one who is able to sustain you? Who morning by morning will teach you and train your tongue? The one who will give you the tender heart, the gentle word. Run to the one who endured suffering far greater than any of us will ever endure. And who offers us the same strength to endure whatever is in front of us today. All right, we're living in interesting cultural times. You know this. A few weeks ago, I threw up an image on the screen that Ed Stetzer has created in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Uh, it was a picture of the cultural streams and how the mainstream culture was just a few years ago, at least nominal Christian in name, a uh, Christian culture. But how Christianity is now being pushed to the margins, uh, that there's an island has come into that stream and we are being separated from mainstream culture. And it's not that we have been invaded by a physical army as these people had and drag literally across a desert, but our culture has indeed been invaded and taken hostage. We truly live in a post-Christian age, not pre-Christian, but post-Christian where our culture has purposely rejected what they knew to be true. And you might say, well, maybe it's because the people of God have not been the people of God. That's, that's an interesting thought. Tim Keller says this in his book, How to Win the West Again. We're entering in a new, into a new era. In many places in the West, there's not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but actually social cost to espousing faith. Culture is becoming more actively hostile toward Christian beliefs and practices. Semi-biblical, generically religious beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people as culture produces people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. They can't see it, they don't hear it, they don't understand it. They don't want to see, they don't want to hear, they don't want to understand. And in many ways we can feel like we're living like strangers and exiles, that we don't really belong here. But the values of the kingdom of God are so foreign to the world that wants to rule itself. And so we might ask, how should we respond? And our text would suggest that we follow in the steps of the suffering servant. That Jesus entered into the culture of his day knowing full well that society is only transformed by the power of God. By caring one life at a time, sustaining the weary one individual, one family, one people group at a time. That Jesus was tender. He was gentle. We, we see it in his ministry. In fact, it, Jesus said of his, his own work, he said, you know what? People who are healthy don't run to the doctor. It's sick people who know that they need a physician. So I have come to minister to those who know that they are sick, who know that they are broken, who know that they have need of something outside themselves. I've come for those people. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And yet, even with that motivation, 
Even with his message of healing and grace and comfort, even then he was rejected because people didn't like the implications of his message. They didn't like the path to healing that he suggested. They, they didn't like to be reminded that they had a creator to whom they were accountable, that the one who made them has every right to order their lives. And so the very thought of giving up control of giving up the ruling seat in this little kingdom that I call my life is rejected. And so the servant was ultimately mocked, ridiculed, shamed, beaten, and killed. And he turns to us now, his New Testament servants, the church, the people of God. And he says to us through his disciples, don't be surprised if they hate you too. You're guilty by association. If you identify with me, they hated me, they will likely hate you too. And so our call is to follow the true and better servant. Israel failed. Jesus was the perfect example. And we are called to follow that true and better servant. But where would we ever find the power to do that? And I think it's right here in our text, friends. It's so simple, and it's what I want to leave you with today. That morning by morning, Jesus tuned his ears to the Father's voice. That he was immersed in the scriptures. That he regularly took time alone to be with the Father. To strengthen himself in the Lord. What I'm going to say next might be a huge disappointment for some of you. But it must be said. What I'm going to say next might disappoint you. But it needs to be said. There is no magic formula to a victorious Christian life. There is no secret handshake or some special knowledge that you need to find. There is no new interpretation or teaching that every other generation before us has somehow missed. Mark Sayers, in his book, Disappearing Church, puts it this way, in all our attempts to scramble for a solution of the challenges of our culture, what if the answer is what it has always been? The path of walking in Jesus' footsteps, of following the traditions and teachings of the apostles. What if the answer to our culture's challenges is still the gospel? The good news of Jesus, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You see, the secret to walking in the steps of Jesus is simply to walk in the steps of Jesus. Four times he says, the sovereign Lord was my help. And so the first step on this journey is for us to say, Lord, there is no way that I can do this alone. I cannot follow your example. You left us a perfect example and I will fail every time. I cannot do this in my strength. I can't pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. So, Lord, how I need you. Lord, help me. Take me and mold me and fill me and use me. Lord, if this little life of mine, this little blip on the radar of history, if you can use this 70, 80, 90 years, whatever you give me, if you can use this life for your glory, then, God, I give it fully to you, and I can't do it alone. God, I need you. 
And so morning by morning, I'll tune my ear to your word. I, I, I want to have that gentle answer on my lips. I, I want to be known as the one who sustains weary people. I want to be the friend that other people turn to for encouragement and, and to be pointed to the word of God. So Lord, teach me. Disciple me. Give me the tongue that is tutored by the spirit of God. And Lord, you know full well that living for you is increasingly not a welcome call in this world. We are feeling more and more like we fit in. We have not suffered like you suffered, Jesus. We have not yet been beaten and mocked and spit on, at least not in the part of the world that we live in. But Lord, the day may be coming and we face our own sense of persecution and alienation. We do feel like strangers, Lord. So give us the tenacious spirit that you gave to Jesus. He set his face like a flint to follow your call, come what may. So God, give us a vision that's bigger than the American dream, bigger than just getting through. Give us a glimpse of the inbreaking transformation of the kingdom of God and give us the strength to stay on course just when we want to give up. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Tender and tenacious. But Lord, I do want to be tender. I really do. And I also want to be tenacious. So Lord, help me. Because I can't do this alone. And neither can my friends who are listening. Lord, help us. I got three quick questions for you and then we're going to close. Three quick questions of application. I told you at the beginning that Jesus was tender and tenacious and so should we. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you have ears that are attuned to the kingdom of God? You read this text and it is so clear that Jesus responded in obedience. You see, the only difference between the servant Israel and the servant Jesus was the response of their heart. They both heard the word of the Lord, but Israel failed to live it out. And so just ask yourself, am I apt to obey? Will I do more than just hear the word of God, but will I actually listen to it and will I obey it? Do you have ears that are attuned to the kingdom of God? That's the first question. Secondly, let me ask you simply, do you have a regular quiet time with the Lord? And you might wonder, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean exactly what it sounds like. Do you have a regular quiet time with the Lord? Do you regularly take time alone with God in quiet with his word in front of you and listening to what the spirit of God would say to you through the revealed word of God? Do you have a time and a place set aside? Maybe it's early in the morning, like our text says here, that he awakens me from morning to morning. Maybe given your schedule and your family and the reality of the season of life you're in, it has to be some other time of the day. Maybe late at night or the wee hours of the morning. But do you have a time set aside where you regularly meet with the Lord? Where you open your Bible and you sit down and you simply say, Lord, would you speak to me today? Give me a thought for today. I'm so grateful for some of the experiences God gives us. Back when I was a 15-year-old, my folks encouraged me to go on a summer mission trip. And I spent eight weeks in the Dominican Republic, and as, and as part of that team, we were required 
to have 30 minutes of quiet time every day. We were encouraged by our leaders, take advantage of that time, open your Bibles, pray, maybe journal, write down a few thoughts. And as a 15-year-old, I, I thought, well, you know what? I've got to be quiet. I can't talk to anybody else. We had to separate and go our own ways. 30 minutes a day, you had to be quiet. I might as well take advantage of it. And I'm so grateful to God that he gave me that experience because after eight weeks as a 15-year-old, Having 30 minutes a day of quiet time with the Lord, it became a lifelong habit. Have I, missed, have I missed a day here and there? Yes, of course I have. Don't get legalistic about this. But the habit that is ingrained of a regular, consistent, quiet time, just opening the Bible, listening to the Spirit of God, asking the Lord in prayer, would you speak to me? Do you have a regular quiet time? Will you determine to make it a habit to set aside a regular time? If you've never done this, start simple. Start with just 10 minutes. Sit down with your Bible. Say a prayer, Lord, speak to me. Maybe you read a proverb a day or a few Psalms or the Gospel of John. If you need help and where to start, just get a hold of one of our pastors. We would love to set you up with a, a very simple Bible reading program to get you started. But just start. Start the habit of a quiet time with the Lord. And then finally, in these days that we're living in, are you strengthening yourself in the Lord? If Jesus himself had to turn to the Father to walk in submission and obedience and tenacity of spirit, heart, mind, and soul, how much more do we need the filling of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis? And so don't be afraid to tell God that you're weak and that you need strength for today. It is his specialty to take weak things and to use them in powerful ways, to use them for his glory. Are you strengthening yourself in the Lord? Jesus was tender and tenacious, and so should we. And he promises the strength that we need to follow in his steps. Let me pray for you. Lord God, these are indeed crazy times that we find ourselves living in. The very fact that we're not even together face to face, but we're meeting in this online forum is one of the weirdest seasons that we have ever lived through. And yet, Lord, even in the midst of this, we know that you are faithful, that you are sovereign, that you are in control over our lives. And so, Father, help us to see our way through to the end of this. Help us to set our face like a flint to say, I will not grow weary in doing good. I will not give up. I, I will endure. I will be steadfast, immovable. I will always abound in the work of the Lord because I know my labor in the Lord is not in vain. But Father, I know full well that there are men and women who are hearing this message who desperately need the first half of Jesus' ministry. They desperately need a word to the weary to sustain them and to encourage them. And Lord, I pray that you would bring that word to them by your Holy Spirit through the written word of God. That they would not just look to another human being, some other person to encourage them, some other human voice in their life, some other teacher, but they would literally go to the word, maybe even today, and open the word and say, Lord God, I need you to sustain me. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to help me. I want to get through this. I want to say, set my face like a flint as well. I want to do what you've called me to do. But Lord, I'm weak. And I need the strength to get through another day of life. Lord, may that be true for each one of us. May you meet us. May you meet us in powerful ways as we come to you. 
looking for your strength. And so, Lord, I pray that blessing on every person who's listening to this message this week. Would you, by your Spirit, encourage us? Would you remind us that in your earthly ministry, you were tender, you were gentle, and you were also tenacious? And we can be both at the same time for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.